Hi, and welcome to the Design Systems Podcast. This podcast is about the place where design and development overlap. We talk with experts to get their point of view about trends in design, code, and how it relates to the world around us. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Knapsack. Check us out at knapsack.cloud. If you want to get in touch with the show, ask some questions, or generally tell us what you think, go ahead and tweet us at the DSPod. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Design Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Strahl. Today, I'm here with PJ Onori. PJ, thanks for joining the program. I'm going to let you introduce yourself because you're in kind of a, an interesting liminal state right now. So dive in. My name is PJ Onori. I've been working on design systems on and off since about 2011. Recently, the long tenure I had is working on the Pinterest design team, building out Pinterest design system, which is called Gestalt. And that's it. Good to be here. Awesome. Well, hey, glad to have you. And you're also part of a podcast with Davey Fung, right? Yeah. Davey and I do a podcast, which is rad. It's Design System Office Hours, where we randomly sometimes talk about design systems. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's part of this podcast, too, is we occasionally talk about design systems, but mostly <laughs> talk about just like design and engineering stuff. <laughs> well, hey, I'm super stoked to talk. One of the big things that I wanted to chat about is, you know, you've been around design systems for a minute, even longer than I have. And one of the th- frames of reference that is often something that I mark time by in this community is how familiar people are or how much they understand the concepts of design systems. And before the show, I was telling you that in my work as CEO at Knapsack, I spent a lot of time talking to prospects. And most of the time, a year ago, when I would go meet an executive buyer, like a a VP or a C-level person, I would have to explain to them broadly what a design system is. But I do that less and less frequently now. More and more often, like there's at least a basic understanding of what's there. And that's kind of representative of this industry maturity as we start to gather steam and get a following. I view that as a a really important kind of dynamic of how things are changing. Given that you've been doing this a lot longer than pretty much anybody I've met, I want to understand how you think about marking time in this industry. Like, what are the conversations that you used to have that you don't have anymore? What are the ways that you're thinking about things that are maybe different than when you started? Yeah. So the first thing was like, what the hell is a design? What are you talking about? What the hell is a design system? That was, you know, the first stage of things. Why is this any different than a UI component library? Why is this different than Bootstrap? You're making up funny names for things that already exist. That was probably the first phase. I think early on, you're trying to keep things humble and simple in terms of its definitions. So you're focusing on reusable components and Don't make the same thing twice and just the basics of design systems. And then you fast forward, I'm going to leapfrog to where we are now, where I think that part is understood. The components is fairly understood. I think the efficiency is fairly understood. People are starting to, including myself, trying to push it a bit and say, hey, it's not just about components. Remember when I said it was about components? It's not just about components. It's about all these other things. And that is risky. And I'm throwing myself under the bus there because then all of a sudden, you know, it's kind of like defining design nowadays. What the hell is design? Well, I mean, if you talk to five people, you get 10 different answers. The more abstract we make design systems, the harder it is to understand, the more that understanding fragments. So I try to keep it somewhat concrete to some degree to make sure that at least, at least we can agree that it's reusable UI components and then all the other stuff we may or not agree. It is interesting how there is this sort of morass of stuff that is design system related, right? And in our early days, which would have been 2015 or so, you know, what we were really talking about was things like component driven development and that whole like don't repeat yourself thing. And 
you know, what is the difference between a component and a pattern and all these other kind of foundational concepts that I do feel are like better understood when you then take those ideas and you fast forward and, you know, as thought leaders in the space, as early adopters in the space, the rest of the world starts to catch up. I'd be curious to think, what is the stuff now that we're talking about that feels a lot like those early conversations? I think it's more of the pushing beyond components where the eyes start to glaze over and it starts to get a little bit harder to make that case. The thing I would say to the Gestalt team, only to the Gestalt team, (laughs) was like, yes, we're making a design system, but what we're really doing is we're changing the way that the work is done at Pinterest. Because once we get people using components and understanding that there's a single source of truth and we're all swimming in the same direction, that changes everything. This changes how you talk with your cross-functional partners. It changes how you ideate on the product. It changes your go-to-market strategy. It changes everything. But if I go out the gates like, yo, homies, we're changing how you do the work. Now everything's changing. I mean, obviously, there'd be a lot of anxiety around that. So we didn't say that. We just said, hey, we're making reusable components. Isn't it awesome? But what's really happened in a lot of these design systems is that you just aren't doing work the same way anymore. There's some negatives, but a lot of positives. So it's not just changing the way you're doing the work. You're improving the way that you're doing the work. Not all change is good, but I do think that as an aggregate, design systems are improving the way work is done within companies. Let me stick with that for a second, because I think it is interesting, right? You know, our company's internal mission statement is change the way people build digital products. And we recognize that culture change as being pretty essential. But like you said, you can't just go in and be like, you know what? All this way that we're doing stuff, we're just going to get rid of that and do something different because that freaks people out, right? Even me as a startup founder going into, you know, venture capital conversations, like no funding partner wants to say like, well, in order for this to be successful, everybody needs to change the way they build all their products. I don't think that's really like necessarily the winning message, but you do it by degrees. And I think you have this like smart idea about when you come in, the goal is the change ultimately. But you do that through a very small series of incremental steps. And those small series of incremental steps represent how you get people to feel accepting and also less risky about the change that they're undergoing. When you think about that relative to your experience in Pinterest and then elsewhere, like what were some of those key incremental steps along the way? Investment in the team is pretty baseline, uh, but still... You know, the corporate love language is money. So put your money where your mouth is. If you think this is important, you have to fund it. So that was the first big milestone is an acknowledgement that the company was willing to invest headcount, cross-functional headcount to make this happen. That was the first big milestone. The second big milestone was having an umbrella across all platforms. That took a long friggin' time, three years to finally ship our first documentation. It was like day one, that was the goal. But it just took a while to get there. The other one that I definitely didn't say on day one was having some sort of expectation of usage or expectation of engagement. Do you need to use the design system in every single step of the way? No. Does it need to be a part of the product development process? Absolutely. You know, if it's not working, the design systems team needs to know, but you got to try it to see if it isn't working. If there are pain points, those pain points need to be articulated back to the design system team. There needs to be some expectation of engagement back and forth. My understanding is that there's movement in that space 
of just baking Gestalt into the way that the work is being done, which is great. But yeah, like if I went in from day one saying, listen up, y'all, I just finished my onboarding and y'all are going to stop working the way that you were working, it wouldn't be bad. Uh, So you just have to slow roll it and build up trust and build up a desire to use the damn thing. So, you know, if folks want to use it, it's not controversial anymore. If people enjoy using it, it's not controversial. So there are steps towards change. And that's a lot of the work that we are doing was change management. How do you know when that's starting to be successful? Like, is it a change in tone? Is it a change in conversation? Is it a little bit more of that corporate love language coming your way? Like, what is it that makes you start to feel like this is working? If you see enthusiasm on the other side to obviously to use it, but also to improve upon it, to see it being organically a part of the process, to me, that's the big thing. If it's starting to happen on its own, then not everywhere, because you're never going to get everyone stoked about everything. But if you start to see it happening naturally, I think that's when you can start considering it. You still have to dig in and understand, is that just an outlier? You know, How much representative is this of the company? But that's what we tend to want to see is just, you know, hey, folks are doing this on their own. We may be ready for that next phase, whatever that next phase is. So a lot of that comes out in the people that work on the design system, but also the people that consume the design system and ultimately use it in their products. And so you're talking about people getting excited about both of those steps. When you think about that, what does that come across in language? Is that like some product owner being like, man, I can't wait to use the design system today. I I doubt it's that cut and dried. No, I mean, literally, we have folks hitting us up during planning sessions saying, hey, we need your help with components. We want to make a contribution. Or, hey, we've been using this thing, and we want to contribute something back or make an improvement from it. Sentiment, getting good results back in your surveys. We're big on surveys. That was another big step. And then just anecdotally, you know, day-to-day, how are the engagements going in office hours? Is it like an awkward, (laughs) like super tough, pit fight every single office hours, maybe, maybe it's not ready, maybe not ready for it. But if you're seeing a lot of collaboration, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of folks, you know, reaching out, how booked are your office hours? What's the tone of those office hours? It's reading the room. Some of it's quantitative, but a lot of it is also just squishy, qualitative. I'm getting the vibes here and there's enough consistency of vibes to feel like we can take that next step. Yeah. I mean, I'm a bit of a vibes guy myself when it comes to trying to understand this, especially like we think about design systems in a a market context really frequently, right? And so what I often ask people is, what are your new hires telling you that they need in order to be successful? It's one of my favorite questions to talk with a design leader or an engineering leader about is like, hey, the new people that you're bringing in, are they expecting a design system? Are they expecting this structure to be in place? Or are they still fighting against it? And that's been my other kind of barometer that's been pretty recent is a lot of the conversations I've been having are, hey, you know, new employees that we're hiring are expecting us to have these sorts of systems. And so we need to get caught up. And I think that's really cool where people like you that have seen, you know, success in industry and design systems are starting to expand their careers and go to other places. You're watching this idea start to percolate around industry where these things are necessary and important, not just because the organization figures out how to save some dollars, but it's because like people expect to start working this way. Do you feel like that's going to just grow and grow and grow, or is there still a lot of resistance in market? New hires were our best friends because there was no baggage. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that in terms of they had no 
preconception of how to do the work. You show up day one and then you have a team knocking on your door with flowers saying, hey, how's it going? We want to help you. Here's all these great resources to get you started. That is going to leave a lasting impact. So when we did those surveys, we saw a catastrophic difference in sentiment across tenure. Like pre-Gestalt, it was still decent, but it was not even close in terms of the level of sentiment compared to new designers who came in with no expectations and just, oh, this is just how you do the work. Okay, great. Awesome. And so there's a fresh relationship there. So it was at that moment where I'm like, oh, I'm just playing the long game. As long as as we keep hiring, like the answer's already here. End game's already been set because as long as we get new hires coming in, eventually this is just going to get baked in to the culture and the way work is done. So this is a funny sort of interdisciplinary challenge, right? You look at like the career of an average designer and, and you compare it to the career of an average engineer. When you think about it, there's a constant push, especially in engineering, to learn new technologies, new ways of working. And it's really clear when you interview engineers for jobs where you're using a more modern approach or a more modern advanced framework that if they haven't kept up in their career, you can see it. It stands out right away. You know, it used to be things as obvious as like, all right, well, you don't know how Git works. (laughs) Or like, you know, now it's more like, hey, you don't understand how JavaScript frameworks really function. I wonder, like in the design landscape, design tooling changes a lot. But the actual way of working in design has been fairly static. Do you view this as like a material weakness in the way that design approaches this sort of stuff? Where like, hey, look, you know, older generations of designers or more tenured generations of designers like better get on board with this new idea? Or do you view this as something that is like just a slower adaptation? I think it's holding design back big time. And I know it's tough. There's so much we can learn from the engineering process due to the level of rigor and I would say the lack of preciousness around the work. So you write code, it's going to get peer reviewed. There's going to be a PR. There's going to be tests that are run to make sure it don't break. It's not precious, right? It's going to get changed. Someone is going to write over your code. That's just understood. And that is not necessarily the case with design. It's my design. I made this. Don't touch it. It's mine. What's the equivalent of a PR? I guess crit, kind of, but like it's optional. Sometimes it's reviewed, sometimes it's not. Who's reviewing it? Like there's less structure and rigor to the design process, I would argue. People are probably going to disagree, and that's totally fine. Then I've seen in engineering, at least consistently in the places that I've worked. And I would love to see more rigor and less preciousness around the work that we do. You know, we're moving the ball along with the team. Other people can touch it. Hell, that's what Figma is supposed to allow us to do. And we don't seem to be leveraging that as much as we should. And I think it's holding the practice back. No, it's interesting. You know, you talk about the idea of when you write code, you expect it to be overridden or you expect somebody else to touch that. And there's also like dozens of robots that touch pretty much every line of code, right? Like, you know, linters and CI and all these other things like that that go around and you know, clean up all the little odds and ends and bits that we as humans are somewhat imperfect about. And I also don't necessarily see that same structure in design. I do think it is interesting when I think about how much design has come along. I mean, you worked at Envision. Like, you remember the days where a designer was terrified to show interim work, right? It needed to be done. 
And the idea that like Envision enabled you to share some sort of interim prototype was a really powerful thing that ultimately was a big part of the value proposition. But that was heresy at the moment, right? Like, oh, my layered PSD file isn't going to have all 67 layers in exactly the right order. But if I uncheck them in the right order, it can show me like sort of what the flow of the thing might look like. And now with Figma, you've seen that even go a little further where you have a lot of stuff that is actually viewable in real time as people are making those design edits and changes. And so I don't think it's that like designers can't change, but I do think it is this idea that like progress here feels really slow because there's a preciousness to it and ownership of it, but also this idea that like the artistry and the ability to make something like indelibly unique is the goal when the goal is really to actually build product. The biggest irony is that we don't treat the code as precious, and that's what's shipping to production that users are engaging with. But we are holding representations of something that customers will never see as more precious. I'm speaking in broad strokes here. Please keep that in mind. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's lots of teams. Like, yeah. let, let's caveat it right now. There's yeah. lots of teams that are very rigorous about design that have a lot of standards. They've written a lot of Figma plugins, and all those things do put people into a pathway. It's definitely possible. I would agree with you, though, that most of the time it's not done. Something Davey and I have talked about a lot is I used to be really extreme in this stance where design should be as disposable as possible. It should last as little as possible to try to re reduce that preciousness. Disposable, get rid of it, get rid of it. Code is a source of truth. And it was because of the, trying to reduce people's you know anxiety around these things. It's just something to get you to code as quickly as possible to learn there to get in front of customers. For design systems, that's a horrible idea. <laughs> like, right, right. You know, like, clearly, uh, I had some holes in my thinking, but I still think there's, you know, what can we do to reduce that anxiety of you know, sharing an idea? You know, is it going to be perfect? No. Should we be saying you're a horrible designer for sharing this thing that's not perfect? Absolutely not. So I think also is this from a cultural standpoint, how can we just create an environment to where people feel comfortable sharing stuff early? And we're just trying to get feedback and learn quickly and get to a better answer faster so we can get it in front of customers faster. It's not on designers. It's a complex system, if you will, of why we work this way. What I'm trying to figure out, like, okay, but how do we not do that? <laughs> and I, I don't have, clearly, I don't have the answer, but I think that's something we need to work on as practice. Well, I, th I think we have some ideas, though. And I think that this is great because what we basically described is, okay, if you think about the origins of design tools, or you think about the origins of the ideas of design being somehow separate from the actual creation of the product, right? You go back to where early design started, where you were making poster boards and displays and clay models of things, right? And very often you were designing for the physical. And then in the early days of, of digital, you also had paper or digital paper representations of the things you were actually building. And so, you know, we have a, a long history as human beings of designing something in a medium that's much more easy to construct with and much more easy and rapid to iterate in than to actually build the whole thing. Like, I mean, you know, it makes way more sense to build a clay model of a car before you actually go build the car, et cetera, et cetera. There's countless examples of this. What is interesting now about the digital medium, though, is that the ability to say that our design tools are a more rapid iteration for medium starting to break down because the gap between what's happening in the land of design and what's happening in the land of engineering 
in capabilities, it's wider, but in ability to iterate quickly, it's narrower. And so I think that there's kind of two things that are, are happening here that run into each other. Is like, first of all, you have design tools that have to get way, way closer to code. It's already happening. There's Figma dev mode, there's variables, there's all this stuff that's going on there that is bringing those tools closer to the medium it's destined for. And then simultaneously, code is getting way easier to work with. And design systems are a big leader in that ability to make code more understandable, more concise, more easy to iterate with. And so at that period of convergence, the rules that you can put in place in a system like Figma are better than they've ever been for designers. But I kind of wonder what's next, right? And that obviously begs the question, like, what is the purpose long term of our design tools for digital products? Yeah, and boy, it's funny, the Gestalt team, we would oftentimes joke, why do we sometimes struggle with designers to use components all the time? And, you know, because it's literally a blank canvas. <laughs> Like you can do whatever the hell you want to do. Like it's just so different from code, right? Like it just shit won't compile or like it will break. Like there's constraints that we don't see to the same degree in Figma where you, you can draw a yellow star, you can draw a purple box, you can do whatever you want to do. I would like to see a more constraint-based approach to a design tool to where you can do anything you want to do as long as these five things and focus the work, right? Like focus in terms of what's possible because Really, like taking those things into consideration is important. I know, think outside the box is like this cliche term now, but like thinking inside the box is actually pretty important because if all you can do is in the box, then then that becomes pretty important. And at least understanding the constraints and understanding when to break the rules and the value of breaking the rules is really important. So I would like to see a more constraint-based design tool, at least available as an option for folks, especially for junior designers. Like junior designers, it'd be really important because I think those guardrails are helpful as opposed to just, you can do anything, but they don't know where to even begin. But I think that it's also funny because it tends to be inverse in maturity there, at least in my experience, where the more experienced a designer you have, the more constraints they like to operate within. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Totally. And I think that, like, look, this idea of constraints, and if you're a designer listening to this program, you're probably like, wow, these people are just, like, you know, beating up my profession for the past 20 minutes. But the reality is, is, like, designers actually kind of want this, too. You don't want millions of colors to exist in your digital product. You want, like, five, maybe ten. And then you want some variations of those. But the idea that, like, hey, I need to have access to all of these many millions of colors to make the thing that I need to make is fundamentally like not actually true or really good practice. And likewise, we have come up with really complex, intricate things like grid systems and spacing systems inside of our design tools. And like the entire reason why things like auto layout exist is because we don't use design tokens <laughs> inside of our design tools. If we just knew that like, hey, there's six different kinds of spacing and you just use that one in that space, that's much easier than having to try to figure out like, oh man, I have to go like align all these different objects again. I think that there is this pushback against constraints that in some ways is real, right? Like as a designer, you don't want to feel limited in your ability to create. But it also is best practice to have a set of constraints that you can work within. And there's still a lot of freedom inside of that set of constraints. I was talking with my son the other day who's about to turn six. And he was like, Daddy, why do we only play with 52 cards in a deck? He's like, doesn't that make it so that like 
we'd run out of ways that a deck could be shuffled. And I was like, there's a billion ways this deck can be shuffled. And he doesn't even understand like what a billion is. But I was like, so put it a different way. If we were to shuffle the deck each time and deal out a different set of five cards, like it would take most of your life to date to get the same five cards out of that deck in the same order. And that kind of blew his mind. And I think that that's what I talk about. Like when we think about constraints is it's much like a deck of cards. 52 options may seem limited, but there's a billion things you can do within it. I mean, we live in a constraint-based world. I mean, gravity, that's a pretty big-ass constraint that we deal with on a daily basis. I don't think we acknowledge it because it's been with us our entire lives. I would say that that's probably correlated to new hires that onboard and like, this is the design system. Like, oh, well, this is just the rules of the game for this game I'm playing, I'm currently playing. But I agree, it does not feel good to have stuff taken away from you. And if you were designing and do whatever you wanted to do, and then someone takes those things away and injects constraints, yeah, that feels icky, especially if there isn't a very clear value add immediately about how that's going to you know, benefit you as an individual. That's hard. Well, and this is where engineering blows it, right? Is they take those things away. And I think that because of the context of engineering, a new constraint for an engineer is trivial, right? Like, hey, there's a new API contract or there's some new specification or some new schema that I have to adhere to. And so like they're used to that as a part of their daily workflow. And as such, they feel like it's trivial to enforce that on another discipline that never has to have those same set of rules. And I think that the challenge in the land of engineering right now is to try to figure out how working within a set of constraints can feel empowering to a designer, how you can get a designer to work with your code, to work with your components, to work with your design system and make them feel like they can run the same creative process or a very similar creative process within those constraints that still feels good to them, that still feels like they can create. And so often you end up in this place like for a variety of reasons, because security, because technical constraints, because this language, because this different way of committing code feels like overhead. And I think that that's the future of design systems is like, how do you try to take all that overhead and either remove it or make it invisible so that it just feels like working with a design tool. People freaking love working in Figma. And the reason why they love working in Figma is because they can get that sense of wonder about it, that creative magic through it. I think that's totally possible working within a code medium. We just have to do a lot of work to get there. Yeah, I think some constraints are great and then some constraints are not great. And I think, you know, one real important responsibility of a design systems team is having a really sensitive finger on the pulse of especially designers' relationships with constraints. Are there things that we think are important constraints? Great. We need to do a good job of making that case and, and explain why we think it's valuable. Are there just flat out gaps in the system or things that are busted and not working? Those things need to get fixed quickly. I do want to say it's an important two-way street to not just constantly say like, yep, that's a constraint, deal with it, but really understand that, hey, at the end of the day, we are in the service of design and engineering. And if there are things that are just flat out not supporting their needs, ultimately that's our job. And we need to make sure that we are supporting them. We need to do in a way that scales and supports the aggregate in you know, as productive a way as possible. But it's not okay to just lean into that constraint as an excuse to not do things. And then also, like, how do we as a design systems team help bridge that gap between design and engineering? I think we are the natural, we're highly leveraged for that role. 
And so the more that we can get designers understanding the constraints that engineers work on a daily basis and how design decisions can set them up for success or failure, I think then there's a natural gravitation towards working within those constraints. Because ultimately, if the engineer is able to ship something high quality, it's going to make their work look even better. We're all connected. Our fates are tied. And so the more that we can... (laughs) Getting all kumbaya now. The more that we can make that really clear, I think it helps people be more interested to just voluntarily work in a more constraint-based approach. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there is also a part of it that is valuing each other as humans and the contribution you make to the process. Like, again, I feel like I spent the first 20 minutes kind of like being like, designers, you guys are screwing this up. But the reality is, is I value that design process so much, largely because I'm not a designer. Right. Like I get how it works, but I've never been able to create anything that ever went to production from Figma. Right. And likewise, like I created a lot of code in my life. And so I totally have a lot of empathy with those people. But I also just so intimately value that relationship. And when I had a great design relationship with the people that were designing the things, some of the best work I ever did in my life. And so I I think that there is value in the disciplines doing the thing that they do best, but also trying to figure out like, what are those meeting points and how do we set, like you said, reasonable constraints that make it all better? Because ultimately this is all in service of building a product, right? Like we don't build this stuff for ourselves, we build it for users. And so trying to figure out how we go about creating that in the best, most effective way possible, I think that's, you know, a lofty way of kind of aligning everybody. Yeah, I mean, I am a designer. I mean, at least for most of my career, So obviously there's something about this practice that I like, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, I I also don't think we should shy away from sharing our opinions on how we can do better. Obviously I I deeply believe in the value of design. That's why I asked for a paycheck to do it. But yeah, I think there's so much room for growth. There's such a high ceiling of the impact that design can have, but I don't think that happens unless we're able to nudge and flex and stretch a little bit to get to that next stage. And it's also, I think, design systems ain't going away. And I think a lot of this is also understanding how do we as individuals flex our own skill sets and the way that we do the work so that we are positioned to continue to do work in the future and and fit well within a company structure for what they're looking for. So that's another reason that I think that this is important because the way we do the work is going to change. And I think it's important for us to adapt to that changing landscape that is happening right now. So PJ, when you say this is the future, this is happening, there's a little bit of an adapt or die message in there, I feel like. Yeah. yeah. And I think there is an uncomfortable truth that we all somewhat struggle with and that like, look, design systems are about fundamental productivity inside of design and code, right? How fast and how effectively we build product. And when we talk about things like efficiency, consistency, ROI, what we're really talking about is we're talking about potentially needing fewer designers or potentially needing fewer engineers to do the same amount of work. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody gets fired, right? But it definitely means that if you have a consummate productivity increase, unless the need for that profession is increasing at the same rate, you end up in a somewhat awkward position. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this, right? Like if you're talking to somebody that is early to mid career right now and they're saying like, what do I do about this change that's happening? What's the advice you give them? Yeah, that's what I was thinking about that this morning. So I'm going to start off with a story I've never told anyone 
So now I'm just going to tell everyone. I love it. So I'm at Disney and I'm working on a design system when we're trying to make the case for it. And I was putting together a deck of just articulating all the things that were on the roadmap and, you know, the observed efficiencies we've seen with this fledgling design system we've made. And hey, if we expanded to support all of these initiatives that we want to make without a design system, here's how many designers we'd need. And if we did have a design system, this is how many designers we'd need. And about 45 minutes in, I deleted the file and I closed the laptop because it scared the hell out of me because it was like 40 designers just poof gone. And that was like, holy sh! I'm a job killer. I don't know what to think about this. And this was like in 2016. Yeah. It doesn't feel good, right? Like no, you're sitting there no. you're like, wow. Like, does that mean that like 40 people will get let go? Like what, what yeah. does that mean? Right? Exactly. Or, or just not get hired. And I would still say like, that's still killing jobs or just not jobs yet. So yeah, I deleted that deck and never shared it out because it just did not feel right. Now it's not 2017. I've still been working in design systems. So like PJ, what the hell? If you know, if you had such a hard time with that, well, like a efficiency has just been the history of humanity right? Like we just do this. Like, this is who we are. We used to till the soil with tools and we had horses. Now we have tractors, like robots probably down the road. This is how we do the work. And so is that right? Is that wrong? That's a whole other subject, but I don't think that this is going away. And I mean, there's been a few layoffs this year. I think companies are looking to be more efficient. They're starting by cutting headcount. I would not be surprised if a lot of companies say, holy crap, we don't have enough people, but we still got to get all this work done. We need to produce more out of what we have. Design systems continue to grow in interest and popularity and investment. This is a part of the way the work is going to be done from this point on. Again, is that good? Is that bad? There's good and bad to it. So I do think adapting is going to be really important. My number one advice for a designer, save your money. Like that has nothing to do with design. Just <laughs> save your money. Like Dang. make prudent financial decisions, right? Like be in control of your own financial destiny. <laughs> like don't buy that $10 latte because that's something we can all do. But I think also just keeping a strong understanding of the adapting landscape. I don't think it's just jump into AI and like, you know, become a thought leader in AI. I don't think it's that. I think it's understanding that efficiency is going to continue to be an important part of the way the work is done and understanding how you can work more efficiently, how you can work more effectively. Part of that's going to be design systems. Part of that's going to be just critical thinking. Part of that's going to be having a strong business acumen in terms of how you do the work. You are not being hired to be a designer. You're being hired to make the company money. You're just happening to do design, but ultimately they're paying you because they're expecting for every dollar that they give you, they're going to get $2 in return. So having a really strong understanding of the role that you're playing within the company is also really important. It's just, it's going to continue to be a part of the way the work is done. So that's why I'm saying some of this is that as much as I wish there were jobs for everyone, there's definitely a trend towards doing more with less. And that just means that there's going to be less opportunities than I had, which sucks. That's another thing I'm not sure is extremely fair, but here we are. And the least I can do is try to share some advice as to how you individual listening to this can do well and thrive through that process. You mentioned, you know, throughout history, there's been these inflection points and these inflection points where you experience this 
massive leap in productivity. You know, those massive leaps in productivity are often profound and they come with a great period of disruption. And I think that we're almost to that incredibly disruptive moment, if not just slightly past it. And I think that there's a lot to look at historically about how people weather these effectively and, and the things that they do. And a big part of it is, is like trying to embrace the technology in the way that you can that positions you the best to you know make something happen. And so, you know, in that context, when you think about like, what does the future hold for me in a world where a lot of the stuff that was a job gets automated? There is a, a bit of a message of like, hey, this is kind of a terrifying new reality. But there's also this opportunity if you embrace it. And I think that, like you said, this isn't going away. And so the idea that like the total number or the total demand for design jobs might be a little bit different three or four years from now. The one thing that I'm pretty certain about is that it's going to include systems thinking as a big part of the skill set necessary to get those jobs. I agree. Just from a critical thinking standpoint, I don't think it ever hurts to brush up on systems thinking. And it can help you in your everyday life too. It's a good muscle to flex. It's just being adaptable. And then, you know, the one classic that always seems to be in short supply is critical thinking of just being able to work through problems and come up with sound, logical solutions to those problems, which, you know, looping this back, one of the best ways I learned to be a better designer is my time as an engineer. Because it taught me how to think, taught me how to break down problems, <laughs> piece it into smaller things, architect a solution. And so that is another thing of like the best way I've learned to improve the way that I think about things is getting the hell out of design and learning things from other areas and just learning how to think. So that would be another opportunity I would encourage anyone to delve into is get out of Figma for a little bit and stretch. <laughs> well, hey, PJ, albeit a message that feels a little uh, prophetic maybe in, in a somewhat ominous way. I do so appreciate you taking the time to share. Like this has been a great conversation, super interesting chat. And I also appreciate you being willing to open up about this stuff. It's something that I think is, you know, not talked about enough and not talked about openly. And it's been really great to just have the conversation. It's my pleasure, man. And hey, I'm wrong all the time. And I'd love to be <laughs> wrong here. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, so like, that's the other thing is like, hey, it's just my point of view. It'll be interesting to see how the years ahead play out. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you for being on the program. This has been the Design System Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Strahl. Have a great day, everybody. That's all for today. This has been another episode of the Design Systems Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or a topic you'd like to know more about, find us on Twitter at the DSPod. We'd love to hear from you with show ideas, recommendations, questions, or comments. As always, this pod is brought to you by Knapsack. You can check us out at knapsack.cloud. Have a great day.